My name is Alec Crawford, and this is Stay, a podcast about sustainability, technology, artificial intelligence, and how they impact you at home, at work, and around the world. I am discussing these topics with high-profile guests to give you important information that goes much deeper than other sources. Find out answers to questions like, can artificial intelligence save the planet? And how does ESG investing affect you? We can build a better, sustainable future together. Welcome, everyone, to the Stay Sustainable podcast. And our special guest today is Jane Carpenter, identity theft and data breach expert. Welcome, Jane. Thank you very much, Alec. It's a pleasure to join you. So I'm I'm curious, uh, what was your first job after college? Because it, it probably wasn't a, 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 anything to do with identity theft, I would suspect. No, it wasn't. And it was a lovely place to start because I my first job was in Honolulu, Hawaii. I went to work. I wow. know, great choice, huh? I went to work for a company called Lennon & Newell. We, it was the Pacific office. Lennon & Newell was an ad agency. And I started in on, uh, with the PR team there. Wow, that sounds like a pretty dream first Absolutely. job. And what, what was Honolulu uh, Honolulu like? Was it all built up like it is today? Honolulu or? was very much built up. Honolulu was a very fun place to be. And one of the, the things that was so interesting for me living there was that uh, Hawaii is a, was a state at the time where there is no majority of population. It's all minorities. So it's truly a, a blending, a melting pot. Um, everybody helps everybody out. It very much had sort of a, a village atmosphere to it because people helped each other. Yeah, that's what's going on in Maui for sure exactly. right now after the fires, everybody helping everybody exactly. else. So tell me about your career journey after that. I came back to the mainland and I worked in PR and advertising, sometimes on the client side, sometimes on the agency side. Eventually wound up going to work for Wang Laboratories and worked, was their international PR manager, later became their worldwide advertising manager, then went to Digital Equipment Corporation, became chief of staff for the services marketing organization in the Americas, and also learned about business operations uh, through the warranty side of it. And then I came up to New further up into New England and I went to work for the Maine Attorney General's office and I took the negotiating skills that I had learned at digital working with vendors, started working as a mediator in the consumer division. And one day the then attorney general, Steve Rose said, we need a page on our website that talks about identity theft. And I was asked to write it and it caught fire with me. And so that's been it since I wrote that page quite a while ago, but stayed at the AG's office for a while and then decided to leave, start my own company and we, I'm not a technologist, but we sort of try to help companies understand risks and what they can do to prepare for data breaches. And along the way, we also have trained police departments and we participated occasionally helping lawmakers as they consider new laws. Oh, pretty cool. So I, I, I might be able to guess, but what was your favorite job? My favorite job is having my own company. There's, there's nothing like it. You can sort of follow wherever you want to go. And it's been a really interesting journey. So I've loved it. Awesome. And besides yourself, who is your favorite <laughs> boss? Well, 
Probably more so than myself. (laughs) My favorite boss was a guy named Brian McMaster, who was head of the investigation division at the attorney general's office. He's a wonderful mentor, great boss, and still a good friend, actually. So that's awesome. And and what uh, what made him special was it something about him or something he did or Brian had a very uh, quiet way of uh, handling situations, and it was it came because he had a long, long history in law enforcement. He was the senior most law enforcement person other than the attorney general, because that is all law enforcement. But Brian came at it from a police, the policing standpoint. So he really was able to run interference with me, uh, for, for me, I should say. And it just was really a very sane, very interesting kind of person to work for. I learned a lot from him. Awesome. Yeah. Learning is, is super important. Yeah. And I, identity theft is becoming so sophisticated now, right? I mean, uh, the scams just keep getting crazier and crazier. The scams get crazy and identity theft has changed so very much. Just to give you an example, years ago, we were looking at identity theft and it involved debit credit cards. You could go on the dark web and you would pay up to $100 for, for example, for a social security number, for debit or credit card number. Now you go to the dark web to go shopping and you're paying $2 for a social security number because I know it's very different. And the reason is it's a different form of identity theft. What is prized is the login credentials for folks. So for example, on the dark web, you, you might only have to pay two bucks for social security number, but if you want a Gmail account login, you'll pay 80. And if you want the login credentials for an email administrator, those are going for $120,000. So it's all, how do you get access wow, to the system? Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Pretty wow, that's incredible. A lot. Now, besides email for individuals, everything seems to come back to your mobile phone, phone number. I get texts and confirmations all the time there. How can we protect that? Some of the protections are built in by the manufacturers. And again, I'm, I'm not a technologist. I have an understanding as a user. Interestingly, um, more than half of all internet traffic these days is coming from mobile devices. So it's phones, it's tablets. Um, And so some of the things that people can do are to do things like, you know, make sure that you've enabled the security features for your phone, be aware of whatever Wi-Fi is available and that you're using. Think twice before you download apps, particularly if they don't, don't download apps that aren't coming from a a legitimate source. That's, that's really the important thing. But there's also a business aspect to this as well, Alec, which is, that's good for the individual, but from the standpoint of the business, you've now got a workforce that's using phones. They're using phones personally, but they're also using it perhaps to access things that they need to for business. And so there, it creates a whole other ent- potential entry point into business systems. And businesses should be looking at, if they don't already, they should be looking at creating policies with regard to employee use of phones, what restrictions they want to place on the use of phones, what apps can be on the phone, all of that sort of thing. It, it needs to really be looked at by businesses. 
Yeah, I think that's that's pretty tricky. And uh, I remember when I was at uh, a prior employer, you know, the employer wanted to put all kinds of stuff on people's phones. And a lot of people were reticent to do that, shall we sure. say. Well, well, as as you mentioned earlier, the real money is in corporate and government breaches, not, you know, individuals. What do you what do you think are some breaches uh, that you've you've seen that really stand out as noteworthy? I think there are four that are particularly noteworthy and they're noteworthy to me because they sort of represent milestones in this trajectory of breaches. So the first one that's that's interesting to look at is in 2014, Home Depot experienced a data breach of 56 million records. And this was malware that was uploaded onto the point of sale uh, checkouts in Home Depot stores. The reason it's noteworthy to me is because as a result of this breach, which followed on the heels of other breaches, the banking industry and the credit card people said, we've had enough of this. And they started to send out, uh, implement chip and pin technology on credit cards as opposed to just magnetic stripes. Chip and pin had been widely used in Europe with a lot of success. And at the time, back in the 2014-15 timeframe, if there was a data breach and a bank or a credit card company had to send out a new card, the cost to that company was 5 to $10 a card. So when you have companies that are having 56 uh, million records stolen, the cost to the, the various credit card companies and various banks was getting enormous. And they just said, nope, we're going to move this along now. And by 2015, that was the targeted date to have chip and pin technology implemented were sent out across the US. It took different merchants a little more time. But anyway, so that was the that was one of, of the things that I think is noteworthy. The second one was 2017 was the Equifax data breach with about 40% of the US population unfortunately uh, was affected. 149 million records were stolen. That was social security numbers. And that was not somebody looking for a credit or a debit card that they could reuse and, and sell. This was social security numbers. 149 million Americans had their unique identifier that's issued to them by the U.S. government stolen. Uh, so it's, it's a very significant, and later on, by the way, the Department of Justice identified four Chinese nationals who were responsible for that breach and secured indictments for them. The next breach of significance happened in 2020, and that was a solar winds breach. That's called one of the biggest cyber breaches of our century. And what happened was a company called Solar Winds had software that was used by thousands of, of government agencies and businesses around the world, and it was used to manage their systems. And unfortunately, malware wound up on the system uh, that provided updates, and so the next time SolarWinds pushed an update out to its users, the malware went out with it. Uh, fortunately, the company later said that only about 100 companies were affected, but it's still worrisome because it affected, uh, as I said, government agents, agencies of the U.S. government, agencies in Europe, the um, uh, European Union's parliament was, was affected, and Fortune 50 companies like, you know, Microsoft, Ford, Visa, MasterCard were potentially on that list. So it's a concern. And then finally, the fourth one is um, a 
a uh, ransomware attack, which happened in 2021. And there's a company called Colonial Pipeline, which provides 45% of the fuel that's shipped to the Eastern United States. They had a, a ransomware attack, had to shut down the pipeline for six days. And that fuel is, is things like provided fuel for uh, jet airplanes. It provided ga the gas station, the, also heating oil for people. So those, I think, are four significant ones. And if you look across them, what you see is you see this pattern shifting from credit and debit card theft, and now you're into attacking systems that are part of governments and looking at ways of disrupting our way of life, as in the colonial pipeline. Yeah, some of these were ended up being crazy expensive, and the common thread seems to be that humans are the weak link. Very true. Very true. It, you know, it's still the same. Go out and talk to, to groups, and you talk about what they can do to better protect their systems, and, and the message hasn't changed, unfortunately. The people that start these attacks know our behaviors, and still the cause of the most of these is email, phishing email, and password, password reuse. So it's been reported that 91% of cyber attacks begin with email. It's a phishing email, usually looking for lo login credentials. As if you remember, the price tag on some of those credentials is pretty hefty on the dark web. And they're very sophisticated. Back in the day, people would get an email and it was obviously, it was pretty easily recognizable that it came from someone who, whose first language might not have been English and who didn't, and who was constructing a pretty sloppy email attempt. But now you look at this stuff and they're quite sophisticated. A page, an email will come up and it looks, for example, it looks exactly like something you might get from Amazon. And the message says, there's a problem with delivering your package. Please log in, log into your Amazon account. And there's more information. So people will log into the Amazon account as soon as they log in that's captured their, their login, their password's been captured, their pa password then can get reused. And the attempts are successful because the data thieves understand that we reuse passwords. It's just part of human behavior. So, and a, a, just a quick heads up, if I may, to Alec, to add something for organizations. Uh, we have a, as the younger workforce comes in, and as your older workers leave, younger workers come on board, there's something that organizations need to be looking at. And that is younger workforce, the folks have grown up with technology. Technology begins to look to, to the younger workforce as a commodity. You turn on the light switch, you get the light, you turn on the, the faucet, you get water, you reach for your cell phone or whatever, and, and you're into cyber. And so the use of this is a little more casual and the protections for this a little more casual than it would be among, let's say, other older users. Case in point, uh, the, F, this, uh, FBI has reported that 40, almost 45% of cyber crime that's reported is coming from millennials. One in every three millennials is sharing passwords and among millennials, 25% have reported being a victim of identity theft, and 24% of Gen Zers have reported being a victim of identity theft. So the challenge for organizations is to, for training, 
it's not one size fits all. You really have to target your message and get sophisticated about the training. So how else can we as leaders prepare our firms and employees to resist the hackers then? Constant training, of course. It, the efforts need to be really total from the top of the house down. That involves the CEO, C-suite executives across the functions. You can't just kick this to uh, your technical people and say, well, it's the, it's the IT folks. They need to handle it. So you have programs that are targeted specifically at different groups. Many organizations do not provide cybersecurity training for their people that work remotely, the people that, that work from home. And finally, I'm a great believer that every, every performance review that an employee has in an organization needs to have a cyber component, needs to have a cybersecurity component, and that component needs to be pass-fail. Um, uh, you know, you're either good at that or you're not, and compensation needs to be linked to that so that people really start to get the message that we take cyber seriously. That will get people's it attention. You know, during COVID, I was, I was worried that all these work laptops were getting hacked at home. Did cybercrime increase? Cybercrime did increase. And <clears throat> it's interesting that the FBI was reporting by June of 2020, when most of our workforce was remote, Cybercrime was up by 75%. It's also been reported that one in every three home computers is carrying malware. So that's like, uh, you know, a great entry point. And interestingly, also with regard to the COVID remote workforce, is that Interpol, which monitors crime around the world, was showing that where the attacks pre-COVID had been targeting small businesses, once the workforce went home, the bad guys were now starting to target larger uh, corporations and organizations because they knew they had a very weak entry point on a home computer. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I've, I've, I've been worried about that for a while as well. And, and for these large companies or, or mid-sized companies, what are the key steps to prepare a cyber response plan? Well, Certainly, the beginning of your cyber re response plan should be to pull your team together. Uh, definitely identify the resources you need in-house. Cross-functional, this can't just be the IT people. You need to work with the C-suite. Almost every aspect, if not every aspect of the organization needs to be involved. And a word about that, you have both internal to your organization and external resources that you need to identify before a breach. External resources are things like identify the company that you want to link up with that provides breach remediation services. Those are companies that will come in, for example, and when you need to send out notification letters to people who have been affected, they will do that for you. You want They'll come in and they'll establish an 800 number so that your corporate headquarters isn't inundated with calls from employees, shareholders, and customers, as well as the media, they'll take all of that offline for you. And probably the most important resource to line up, I believe, is expert legal advice. And when I say expert, I mean legal advice that is totally experienced in cyber. This is a very different world, and you need attorneys who, all attorneys, I'm sure, doing a great job, 
this is not a place for your uh, corporate count, your in-house counsel or the law firm that you've used with your to help you incorporate your business. This is an area that's highly specialized. So you do that. You, and you um, then take a look at what you're going to do once um, detection and discovery, how you escalate, how that's going to be escalated throughout the organization, how you want to communicate, how you want to notify people, how you're going to do risk reduction, are you going to offer credit monitoring or something like that? And then you don't just sort of say, okay, we've done our plan and let's put it on the shelf. You need to continue to review it and continue to improve it. Totally makes sense. Now, do you have uh, recommendations or books or an online course or papers or anything that, that uh, people should read? I do. I, a book that I, and it's, this is not, particularly for um, regarding data breaches and identity theft, but just a great book that I like, um, it, just a general business book, is a book that's called Red Team by Micah Zenko. And it's a super book for business leaders because it encourages you to don't just listen to the, don't just pay attention to the group think, listen to listen to the devil's, devil's advocates in your organization and sort of a great, you know, real time, real life example of that was I heard uh, Dr. Borla, who's head of Pfizer interviewed, and they were asking him, how is Pfizer able to create a COVID vaccine so quickly? And he explained what the company had done was they created two teams. They had one team that went about it in the traditional way and they had another team that they created. They said, you know, just do whatever, do whatever you think. And the team that got there the quickest with the answer was the red team, which was the team that did not do things the traditional way. So as far as other things that folks can read, uh, the uh, C-suite or boards can read, the FTC's got great information with regard, particularly their safeguards rule, which gives you suggestions for putting together your info security program. One of the things that's coming up on its 10th anniversary, and I still refer people to it because I think it's such a great example, is a letter that then Attorney General Jepson of Connecticut sent to the president of Anthem, the health insurance company at the time of its data breach around 2014. The letter included 11 questions and it had a very quick turnaround. It said, we would like you to answer these questions and we would like our answer fairly quickly. Some of the questions involved the specific technology around the breach. But what was very interesting about this letter is that there are a number of questions that don't. And they ask things like, what representations have you made to your employees and to your customers about the security of their information? How much training do you have? How often do you have training? What sort of disciplinary actions has the company taken in certain instances when information has not been handled in the appropriate manner. So it was pretty obvious that what they were looking for was what's that culture of cybersecurity, what, what was going on in, in the workplace. All of those are great things to, to refer to. Very cool. Now, obviously, some companies, uh, even the ones you talked about before, when they're, they're breached, uh, they're asked to pay a ransom. And some of them do and some of them don't. What's, what's your advice? The FBI would say don't do it. And don't do it because it just encourages more, more of that. But the other part of that is that 
you have no guarantee that they're going to unlock your data. You know, it's, it's assuming that the people that you're dealing with or bad actors are going to behave honorably, and that might not be the case. The other, there are two sides to this as well. A couple of states recently have actually passed laws that say we're going to, we are now going to say that any state agency or local agency within our state is now it's going to be illegal for them to pay a ransom. They're no longer permitted. And the federal government is looking at that as well. There are two sides to that thought. One side says, yeah, it's a good idea. And the other side is thinking, no, nah, probably not so much because all it's going to do is drive the payments underground and then it's going to be harder, harder to track them and harder to uh, be able to, for example, get funds back. Um, so the thought is divided on it, but for now the FBI is saying, no, don't pay the ransom. And, and before a, a data breach is part of the planning process or maybe after, who knows, what, what types of information do you need to inventory? It's a great, that's a good question. And in general, American organizations, business organizations are holding on to too much information. The Bar, Associ Bar Association estimates that this year, $42 billion is going to be spent on e-discovery. So that's forensic examiners going through texts, tweets, emails, documents on servers, documents storage in the cloud, so just in general, organizations are paying way, way, are storing way, way, way too much money, and it's costly. There's, there's obvious costs and hidden costs to this. In terms of what, he, what the information that's collected and stored, there's obviously employee information, social security numbers, dates of birth, dependents, driver's licenses. If you have employees who travel, you might have record of a passport. If you have employees from other countries working for you, you might have visa and passport information. Then you have customer information. Again, given your particular industry, you might be collecting and holding information. And then there's this whole other category of information, which I think of as the intellectual property portion of it, which are things like licenses, designs, patents, processes. What's, what's your special sauce? What makes your organization unique in the marketplace? And organizations have that. So... People just need to do a really good job of not storing as much information, hang on to what you need so that you can meet the regulatory requirements and conduct your business. But there's all kinds of stuff that goes into, uh, gets stored in information in organizations, but it never gets deleted. Yeah, great point. Um, so continuing with the advice theme, what's the best piece of advice you personally have gotten? The best piece of advice, I, I've got a lot of good advice, but I think the one that sticks with me the most is um, years ago, I was in an organization that was going through some change and we were uh, getting some instruction and fellow that was leading the course got up to the whiteboard and drew two parallel black lines in, in a, on the vertical and said, this is a train track. The line on the left represents you and your values and what you want to bring to your work environment, the contribution you want to make and how you want to be recognized. The line on the right represents the organization you're working in, its values, how it proceeds in business, how it handles itself, how it recognizes the employee's contribution. 
and, if, and it's a train track. And as long as they're parallel, the train moves. But if the line on the right starts to veer off, which is the corporate side of it, the organizational side of it, the train can't move. And it's happened to me twice. I've said, nope, the train track's veering off. And in both times, I've left that particular spot, gone somewhere else, and it was great. It was a, I wound up being doing much better as a result. So, Great advice. And, and how about some advice for someone in college right now who wants to be in cybersecurity? What should that person do? Run, don't walk. And I mean, run toward it. Hurry up. Finish your degree. We need you desperately. A third of the jobs, cyber jobs in the United States, the technology jobs are unfilled. That's not a good look for cybersecurity. So we definitely need more technologists to be in there and filling those jobs. In general advice, I would say, don't just look down into your own discipline, look out as you're in an organization. In technology, there are only, there, there's a limited number of chief information technology jobs in any organization. But if you also take a look out in the horizon, understand business functions and how they operate, you'll just expand your opportunities for advancement. And finally, critical advice I believe is always speak truth to power. Yep, I'm in that camp. <laughs> and speaking of truth to power, um, you know, obviously boards, this is a super hot topic, cybersecurity. What's your best advice for boards around preventing cybersecurity and data breaches and, and their own risks, you know, the risk of the board sure. itself? Well, <clears throat> for the organization, for the board in general, and I'll include just sort of the top of the organization in this, it's important to understand that cybersecurity does not equal technology. You can't buy $10 more of technology and be $10 more cyber secure. That cybersecurity must be a corporate attribute. And it needs to be demonstrated that it is to shareholders and employees, all the stakeholders. So if you think of it, technology is a tool, but it doesn't create the corporate culture. The corporate culture is how the employees use that tool. So that's sort of one piece of advice. Keep that in mind. And the other is assume that you are going to be breached and get prepared for that resiliency. So it's important that everybody understands that we're in a new age of cybersecurity, that privacy now has to work really closely, or uh, private industry, excuse me, has to work really closely with government and for a lot of these, uh, on a lot of these breaches. And as a matter of fact, an interesting per, uh, fact is that 85% of critical infrastructure in the United States falls in the private sector. And increasingly, they're being looked at to report back in team with the government. So for the C-suite, what's important to know, Gartner Group has forecasted that by next year, 75% of CEOs could be personally liable for cyber breaches. And that's happening more, even more quickly than, than Gartner thought. This June, for example, uh, SolarWinds, which was the software company which inadvertently pushed out malware with its software updates, current and former executives at SolarWinds received notices from the SEC that there may be a civil action brought against these individuals as a part of its investigation and depending on the result of that investigation, 
there would not only be fines imposed, but, a, but it would bar them as well from serving as an officer or director of a public company. So it's absolutely becoming targeted at individuals now, as well as the board as a whole. And finally, Susie, <clears throat> if you want to get a, a look at how bad, how awful it can really be, go to the FTC's website and look at something called the Drizzly, D-R-I-Z-L-Y, consent order. Drizzly's a company that provided a delivery of, of alcoholic beverages, and its CEO made representations about how secure the customer's data was, which turned out not to be the fact. And as a result, as a result of this consent order, now the CEO not only has to do an extraordinary amount of reporting into the FTC, but if that CEO leaves and goes to another company, he takes that requirement with him. So it's getting much, much more stringent. Wow. Excellent. This has been, been awesome. Our, our last segment in the last few minutes is called underrated or overrated. So I'll, I'll give you uh, it, something to rate and uh, then you can say an underrated or overrated and, and give us a, a brief reason why. So uh, we'll kick it off because you're living in Maine with watching the Portland Sea Dogs double A baseball. Underrated or overrated? Oh gosh, I think I have to say no comment. I know that's wimping out, but I'm not a sports fan. So <clears throat> I, I would guess it's probably, it's a lot of fun. It happens in a beautiful spot right down by the water in Portland. So maybe it's underrated. <laughs> All right. Working for the FBI, underrated or overrated? Well, I'm not a direct employee. I'm a member of the FBI's InfraGuard organization, which is, it's, it's, first of all, it's underrated. Not many people know about InfraGuard. And it's a good organization. It, it represents private sector experts teamed up with FBI. Very cool. How about main guides. And I believe you do have to get some kind of certification for that. So you can't just call yourself a main guide. No, I don't think you can. And, and actually there's two, two forms of course of main guides. There's the people that take you around up North, as we say in the County and take you around hiking, fishing or whatever and hunting of course. And then there's also the main guides, which is what to buy when you're at the, uh, in Freeport, Maine going shopping. So all, all main guys. I meant the uh, the people who are taking taking you hiking around. Underrated or overrated? Probably underrated. I don't think many people know about them, but they're. I'm sure they work very hard. <laughs> How about the the food scene in and around Portland? That's Maine? underrated, but it's definitely becoming more widely known. But interestingly, I think Portland's now becoming a foodie destination. So lots of good restaurants. Wow. And, and, and digging back into Maine culinary history, uh, pickled eggs, underrated or overrated? I've never had a pickled egg. It's probably pretty good. I don't know. I like pickles and I like eggs, so I'm assuming it might be underrated. Driving a Volvo in Maine in the winter, underrated or overrated? Oh, boy. Necessary, I suppose. Any, any vehicle that's safe in our snowy winters, probably underrated. And finally, the movie Hidden Figures, underrated or underrated? Overrated. I loved that movie. I thought it was wonderful. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jane. Our special guest today has been Jane Carpenter, identity theft and data breach expert. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You're listening to the State Podcast. You can listen anywhere you listen to podcasts. For example, Apple Podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and comment. And you can also find us on stayblog.substack.com. Thanks. I can't.